0: Illustrated.org podcast coming your way, episode 559. In this one, I'm going to interview Mobster. We're going to talk about powerlifting and golden era of bodybuilding. So let's get right into it. So first off, Mobster, what makes it the golden era? I'm assuming that the golden era in your eyes is the 70s, but is that incorrect? Is it the 60s and two or is it up to the Uh 80s?
1: I would think it depends how old you are, Steve. So I would say, uh, in terms of the whole pumping iron vibe, yes, the 70s would be arguably what most people would agree to be the golden era. So Steve and I were talking about in a pre-show. We say what makes it the golden era. So here's my thoughts on why people think that. Now this is a sense of perspective, guys. 20 years yeah. from now, we might say that 2023 was the golden era of bodybuilding, and we might have a very good reason for thinking that. But as it stands right now, we're going to say the mid 70s. The question is why? Probably because bodybuilding started to mean that you could earn a buck. uh In terms of you know going from thousand dollar Mr. Olympia winners to ten thousand, twenty thousand, and thirty thousand, and actually make a living when it was difficult. uh I was thinking specifically, uh, and there are places all over the world. Every every country's got one. We've got one, but the West Coast and specifically California. So the dream, the it might not necessarily be the reality, but the dream is you went to the West Coast because we'd have asked you. So that was dream number one. That's going to be a golden thing right there. You get to live within five minutes, 10 minutes of the beach. There's a lifestyle for a bodybuilder. Then you're training in, in, in the, what we would might arguably call the first hardcore gyms owned by bodybuilders who couldn't, the dream for any bodybuilder, I would argue this was still the case now, would be to jump in a time machine and go back to the original golds and be able to train with Arnold and Franco like the scene you've seen in Pump and Iron. So here's another thing, guys. They were training. These guys were competing against each other in the same gym. They might be doing the Universe and the Worlds or Olympia, but they were all in the gym together in that time period. That doesn't happen anymore. So there's an argument there to be made for it being a golden rule because you were actually in the gym training with, as being spotted by the guy who wants to take the title away from you. That would be, you know, one of you might be first, one of you might be second. I've actually said for myself, Steve, that when I was competing, if I had lived closer to my my mentor, my slash, slash rival, slash competitor, uh, David Horn. The training sessions we would have had would have kicked fucking ass above and beyond, simply because of the natural competition between the two of us. So there's a golden era right there, Steve. The idea that you go Franco and Sergio and Lou and all these other guys, and they're in the fucking gym with you, and you are kicking ass because you're surrounded by these other guys, that are the uber freaks of bodybuilding at that time, it just doesn't happen anymore. So, yeah, sure. Uh, And the same thing could apply because the other part of the the facet here was the strength. And the strength, again, guys, the suits, they they were doing stuff with suits way back when, where they were wearing tight denim or tight canvas and so on and so forth. But these weren't pairlifting shirts. They weren't squat suits. And the wraps were, my best bench press sleeve was done on a pair of uh, sleeves I got from Boots to Chemist. Way, way, way before I was buying a super-duper sort of sleeves, so elbow sleeves knee sleeves etc you can buy from specific companies and so they were using ace bandages back in the day and they were still doing a thousand pound squats still doing 700 pound deadlifts still doing 900 pound sorry 700 pound benches and 900 pound deadlifts uh you know and and some of their training was especially the lifts. it was kind of shit steve some of the, the greatest strength athletes of all time Stuff they were lifting rocks and barrels with rocks in and kind of fucked up shit. Racks were made out of wood. So you go, how is that the golden age? Because these guys still produced some of the strongest lifts you've ever seen in your life now. And if they put the suits and they had the equipment that were produced now and available now, triple ply this, double ply that, uh you know, monoliths and the like, then they would do. Bigger squats and bigger bench press and bigger deadlifts. So arguably, with very little for the powerlifters' uh, equipment and the support equipment, they were producing some amazing name numbers which still are outstanding to this day. And the bodybuilders were living a lifestyle, uh, doesn't regardless of the drug or no drug use, um, that is is positively uh, something to be envious about. Literally, the idea that you're at, you're, you're sharing a flat with a buddy. You live five minutes on the beach, you go to Gold's gym, you sunbathe with your mates after training, you're all eating together. That doesn't happen anymore. We're more competitive, there's more money involved, there's more, or uh, uh, people just don't get on in that particular way. And that's that's part of the the lifestyle uh, that's created by Instagram. It's just the, the modern way of living and so on and so forth. What do you think on that particular subject?
0: Well, I mean, back in the 70s, there weren't that many gyms. If you wanted a gym, you have to either go to a big city or you'd have to drive hours to get to a gym. Now, in the United States, there's 113,000 gyms uh, in, across America today. So there's a gym on every corner. So and everybody and their mom wants to start a gym. We've got moderators on our forum who have started gyms and who have, who have owned gyms um, We have two moderators right now on our farm, Dylan and JP. They both are gym owners. So it's just amazing how many gyms there are today. I think everybody's dream is to like one day, oh, one day I want to own a gym. Then they own a gym. And they're like, oh, I want to get the hell out of this business, you know? So it's kind of like the gym that I've actually been associated with. They've actually started a GoFundMe page just to stay in business. So I just think it's um, it's incredible how many there are today. That's like a huge, huge industry in America today. Um, And they kind of uh, they're just in the 70s. It wasn't like that. You had, you know, in all of Los Angeles, you probably had like 10, 15 gyms back in the 70s. Now, just in Los Angeles today, there's probably like 5000 gyms. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's fucking nuts. So yeah, how was it in England compared to the 70s to today when you were growing up?
1: Oh man, when when I first became interested in in training, um, all the magazines do this, and you don't realize it because I was only 15, 16, 17 years of age when I first got into it, 15 specifically, and I was probably 16, 17 when I started buying the magazine. So my problem, and this, it sounds a bit silly nasty. For some particular reason, there was a there was a publisher called David Williams who competed. And he had a series of magazines. One of which was quite famous in its own way, Bodybuilding Monthly. But he brought out two other magazines. One was a strength athlete magazine called the Strength Athlete, and one was something else, which the name of which escapes me right now. And they were all based in Dewsbury, West Yorkshire. So I imagined it was like somewhere up north that was like California. In reality, the simple fact was he had an office above a gym, and he published his magazines out of his office above the gym. But I'd imagine because he was, he would mention the gyms in that town, and he had like not he, but there were three or four gyms in that town, uh, it sounded like the place to go because Jewsbury, West Yorkshire is not really that special of a place, but the simple fact that it had three or four gyms or health studios or whatever else, and he was talking about the stories and the athletes and the events, etc., that were coming out of these places made me think that would be a place to visit, probably in reality, where I lived. And in fact, I didn't learn the history specifically of where I lived, but there was a very famous uh, strength athlete and uh, gym of old based literally uh, where I I would walk around, down what we say, down the shops, down the green, and uh, Health and Strength, the oldest physical culture magazine in the world, had actually had an office where I lived. Uh, Wally Pullum had had a gym at the same address as where Health and Strength was. And I didn't know any of these things, so I got much older and way more involved in the history. Let me talk about something else here, Steve. And again, something me and Steve talked about in the pre-show when we talked about ideas for podcasts, et cetera. So there's this is great idea, and I'm going to bring Steve in on this as well. This is great idea. It's a huge argument about what makes the silver and or golden era of bodybuilding uh, more innocent, and that's this idea of the drug use. So here's the thing, right? and I've done articles on this. I've, pre- I've done prepared articles on this, and um, Jamie Lewis of uh, Playful Strength has uh, pointed at the bleeding obvious. Right, history makes us... Know that athletes from day one, and I'm talking about ancient Greek and ancient Roman times, have looked for an edge. They were arguing about running barefoot versus running in sandals. If you're running in sandals, you were cheating. And you've got the same argument applied in more modern terms with running in $10,000, 200 gram running shoes used just for sprinting versus someone else in a $50 pair of running shoes. And it gets, it gets, it becomes inane, right? So the natties, Love the idea, you know, that there's certain bodybuilders from the golden age of lifting didn't use drugs. It's just bullshit. Some, and I can think of as an example, one person that probably didn't use drugs, though he was super analytical, super clean, etc., and, and a lot of other ways with his teeth, with his hair, with his skin, etc., would be Steve Reeves. But as a great example from the golden age, and and we talked about the mid seventies. All of the guys that I've talked about training with uh, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger were using drugs. They're using less drugs than we use now. That's that's not arguable. Arnold has been discussed multiple times as using more drugs than the rest of them around, but probably less drugs than a lot of 26, 27-year-olds using steroid cycles now. Yes, availability was less. Uh, you know, you had to. You, they, they had the great thing, Steve, of being able to go to a doctor Literally, doctors that were fans of bodybuilding, you went to that particular doctor. He's a big fan of this huge muscular guy coming in. Oh my God, it's Arnold, it's whoever, coming to the, uh, the, the, the doctor's surgery and being treated and being prescribed pharmaceutical drugs. So, there's that. There's definitely an argument to be made for them using lower dosages because it's simply the case. And I know people from that time who talked about how small the dosages were. So, that makes it a golden era. But there's this other argument, Steve. If the ancient Romans and ancient Greeks were arguing about cheating to wear shoes, I would guarantee you that if you're a driven individual, someone who really, really, really wants to win, and you have the genetic advantage, you'd use some of the drugs that we have available to us today. That would be the peptides, it would be the psalms, it would be all the things that we have access to, research chemicals that we have access to as bodybuilders now. So, there's an argument to be made for it being a quote unquote more innocent time. But the reality is, I think, and it definitely applies to the powerlifters, and I'll get into a couple of stories for that in a minute, that they were pushing the envelope with what was available to them then. It's just only now going back and looking back with rose tinted spectacles, spectacles through history, you go, oh, we're well, using less drugs. Yes, because you didn't have the accessibility. You didn't have the knowledge. You didn't have the experience that came from other users and so on. So, yeah, there was a lot of buying out of the trunk of cars. There was a lot of going to actual doctors for steroids. Uh, and, yes, they would have used less sausages. On the flip side of that, some of the early powerlifters, and I'm thinking late 70s and 80s, were using properly fucked up amounts. The, the full-on nosebleeds, trying not to have a freaking heart attack, freaking out stuff. So I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. One which is specifically to do with an individual called Lee Moran, who had a reputation both as a Hells Angel, but was also one of the first people to squat a £1,000. And the other one is a very well-known, I'm not going to name him, but he's a former world Strongest Man winner, powerlifter, strength athlete of repute. And I mean of repute in a very positive way, but a particular story that I heard, which may or may not be true, but let's just say it's indicative of what the guys were doing at that time. So, there might be an argument to be made the golden age of powerlifting being more innocent but here's what they were doing so let me deal with that one first they used adrenaline steve the 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 hormone that your body the drug that your body produces when you get into a fight that makes you either punch the person back or run the fuck away it's one that saves you from the danger in nature and these guys were using it to squat and the example i'm thinking of in this person i'm thinking of the story goes but they'd got hold of the little vials that the army uses, and you've seen these in the movies, guys. Someone's just been shot, and they they literally punch or appear to punch um, a drug. Uh, I'm trying to think of the particular the, the painkiller uh, into their body. The other drug that they would have, and these are to treat particular medical conditions in the field while you're getting shot at, etc., all the time, was adrenaline. So they got hold of these things. I think they come in like a little. Cardboard tube with the plastic vial, etc., and you literally pull off the end of the tube and kind of punch it into the body, and it shoots a certain amount of, I think morphine was the other drug, into them. So, the story was that this particular athlete goes off into the toilet, uh, the men's room, and jabs this adrenaline into his thigh, up underneath the squat shorts or whatever else, and naturally because it's adrenaline, he has what a, a probably feels like the world's worst anxiety attack because he's kind of calm, although he's focused on what he's about to do, which is go out and squat nearly a grand. I think it was 900 plus pounds. But he's having a freak out in the toilet cubicle because the adrenaline is going through his body and making him feel like he would on adrenaline, shaking and ready to run away or punch someone in the face. And you're in a toilet cubicle. So he freaks the fuck out, Steve, and starts smashing down the panels between the one cubicle and the next. And his buddies have to come in lift the door off its hinges, grab him by the scruff of the neck with his eyes all bulging, and shove him out towards the lifting platform where he immediately headbutts the bar, gets all kind of crazy looking with red eyes and with borderline nosebleed, gets under the bar, grips it like a motherfucker and squats in the 900-plus pounds. So they were doing fucked-up crazy shit. The other story, and again, Lee was a hell's angel. And there story is about Westside Barbo. I can think of uh, Louis Simmons getting into a fight with one of the lifters there, and they literally had each other around the throat. And they were going by the whole, like, you know, you're getting in my way, et cetera, et cetera, and kicking ass and so on and so forth. When you're talking, uh, Louis Simmons was a big enough motherfucker, 275, but I think the other guy was well over 350, close to 400 pounds. And Louis talks about being able to get his thumb or his hands underneath the other fella's hands, jerking him off. And instead of going on for a full-on crazy fucked-up fight, Immediately stops what they're doing, flops himself down on a bench press and carries on as though nothing had happened. But it was that kind of fucked up scene that you can imagine. And this stuff was going on. So the story with Lee is thus he was one of the first to squat a thousand pounds. And what happens is that they brought the wrong kind of weights, these thick 100 pound weights. There was thin ones, there was different weights they could use, but they would brought the wrong kind. And the bar was shit. It's not a squat bar. So it was a normal bar that they were using, probably brought, you know, online or whatever the verse would back in the day. But it's not the long bar with the better collars when the thin weight's on. And these these 100-pound plates are thick as fuck. So they could only get four of these 100-pound plates on and then a few little weights on the end. And it was literally just a couple of inches left. And he, I think he warmed up. His his opener was 900 pounds, which is a hell of a weight, as you can imagine, 400 and something odd kilos. Uh, his, his next lift is where it went all a bit crazy. They kind of fucked up, like I said, with the weights that I've already described. He wants nine and a half. And uh, because the number's a record, he's going to get a fourth attempt. What happened was they they put the collars on back to front to try and make it so they can get all the weights on the bar. Bearing in mind, he's going to go for the grand afterwards. And the bar, basically one collar came off. Whips around so that all the weights fall off one side. You can actually find photographs online. The, the weight that's still in the bar goes crashing to the ground, how he's not had his head ripped off or smashed to smithereens or whatever, or he's got some kind of injury. And he's stomping up and down, and they're all apologetic like you would not believe. And they've got this real like 300-plus pound lifter who's nearly killed himself, nearly killed the spotters, and how he's not got an injury, and so on and so forth. They let him take the lift again because this has been a massive accident. He hasn't actually squatted, and it's not his fault that it's happened, even though technically you could argue it was his second attempt and he squats it, and the crowd goes wild. And then he asks for the £1,000, which he then gets. So there was a bunch of stories that came out of that kind of stuff. And again, this is a guy's a hell's angel. He's riding at the weekends. He's getting into fights in bars and all that kind of thing. So there's definitely an argument now, I think, Steve, with regards to that, the stories that came, the legendary stories, and the fact that these guys were taking their bodies to places, and this includes the bodybuilders, the places that we're, we're familiar with now as athletes and now as bodybuilders, but these guys were out there at the leading edge and they were doing experiments, both in strength and in bodybuilding, that make us able to have this kind of podcast and talk about the history and know that there are athletes like that now that have benefited from these crazy situations. These you know The, the, the powerlifters aren't doing adrenaline generally so probably for very good reasons, but they are you know really pushing the envelope and some of the numbers, grams per week, was probably more true then of the powerlifters than it was the bodybuilders. I don't think many bodybuilders then were doing anything over at a Week. But certainly the powerlifters were. The powerlifters, I think they were more fucked up, more crazy, more sort of uh, something matter with them in the head. Uh, yeah. What do you think, Steve? And ask me some questions by all means.
0: Yeah, buddy. So let me ask you this question. So athletes looking for an edge. Now, a lot of the old school bodybuilders claim that back then the guys were natural, the guys didn't cheat, the guys uh, – everyone now is being lazy, they want a shortcut. But we talked on the pre-show about that. Do you agree with that? Because in, – and in what are some of the, the the interesting things that guys were doing during the golden age when they were powerlifting to get an edge over their opponents that we look back on and kind of laugh?
1: I, I would say, Steve, absolutely everything. Um, one of the people that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast Uh, Jamie Lewis, Plague and Strength, did a great uh, post on Instagram, and I've actually referred to this on the forums, and I think I said something like, lifters of old were doing fucked up shit, or words to that effect. So here's an example. right? You can go all the way back to Victorian times, never mind ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, like I've already said, and find examples of cocaine-enhanced wine that was being used by athletes like cyclists and the long-distance runners and walkers to get them through these 24 48 eight, forty-eight-hour, three-day marathons, you had stuff back in the day where you had these dance funds, where people were literally there are there's there's clips of film and they're more or less leaning up against each other, propping each other up, and kind of trying to do a dance and doing it for four fucking days to win a thousand dollars. Cyclists and walkers, race walkers, that were using coke or cocaine-enhanced wine that was, of all things, would you believe, Steve approved by two popes at the time. The the athletes that were using amphetamine sulfate, speed, uh, uh, and and other drugs, and again, like I said, we're not just talking methamphetamine; we're talking about cocaine, (laughs) heroin, other fucked-up shit. Just for example, to win a sovereign, Uh, you know, walking around a circuit indoors, having to do a thousand laps of this building uh, to win to win a hundred pounds, hundred guinea bet with a buddy, and all this kind of stuff, and they were taking drugs to do that. You don't stay awake for three days, four days and walk a thousand miles or whatever the fuck they were doing back in the day without drugs. And, and, and a great example of this, even just using the steroidal argument, right? and I go way back to ancient times again. So there's this great argument that it was innocent and we didn't use drugs. So they were eating bulls, testing. This is the great ancient Greek one. Athletes had even more reason to use drugs then than we did now. And here's why. So number one. If you, you represented your town in somewhere in ancient Greece and they sent you to the beginning of the Olympic Games, it was a big fucking deal. The mayor, or the elders, the leaders of the town would come to see you off. It was a parade. All your neighbours would wish you, come on, Joe, go and, go and kick ass, come back with a medal, come back with a trophy, come back with first place. It was a huge fucking deal. It still is in some places where... Even in modern times, Steve, and I'm going to think of a relatively modern though. when you come back, they gave you a fucking car. The town has bought you a house. Equally, and this is especially true of the times I'm on about, if you come back and you lost, worse, you came back last, people didn't fucking talk to you, man. You were like blacklisted and shit. You'd find it difficult to go down to the local equivalent of the local shop. You, you was like become a non entity. They didn't want you to come back. Some of the athletes didn't. They literally didn't go back to the town because they were so ashamed. And then there's there's no argument to be made. We know this was true of uh, the Roman gladiators. They were eating hormones. They were all in their minds, they were eating hormones. They ate the essence of the animal. What do I mean by the essence? So they thought that if you ate the heart, you had more heart, meaning cardiovascular ability. If you ate the brains, you were more intelligent. If you ate this organ, and the classic one for this thing was bulls testicles. The idea was that eating bulls, that they didn't know what testosterone was. But the if this bull weighs two thousand fucking pounds and he's fighting the other bulls, and I he gets killed, and I eat his bullocks, I eat his balls, then I'm gonna the essence of that two thousand pound aggressive bull, and I'm gonna kick ass when it comes to wrestling and boxing, fighting in wars or whatever else. And again. Um, I can think of uh, the Berserkers and the Vikings, the rumour having that they would take drugs or get high or get drunk before they went into battle. First off, it dulled your senses. But equally, there's plenty of times we know of people that get drunk and have crazy fucked up fights. And you you care less about dying when you're pissed than you would when you're sober. But they were using a bunch of other drugs. Literally, ancient Celts were doing this stuff and they're getting high. And, and, and drinking meat and doing all these kind of fucked up things. So this argument to be made is true in in regards to accessibility and dosages. That's probably true. But you can find a million examples, as I've just described, of people getting high to fire, high to walk and win money by doing a 1,000 miles in a week or whatever, walking or running or doing fu- crazy fucked up things. And the idea is somehow... Athletes of that time were more innocent, more naive, is bullshit. And I, I, I'm not getting, I'm, I've, I've specifically gone to historical, one called the Oscar Heidenstam Foundation dinner. doesn't happen anymore. And there was a fellow there called Dr. Ken Leo Rosa. I think that's is the right, right way of pronouncing his name. And he'd had the um, experience of being in the car with Arnold when they went out chasing Skirt. Ken, Dr. Ken Leo Rosa was a great pianist, a decent singer. And obviously, someone had trained, and it was one of those things where the guys got together after the gym, and they went out to a nightclub. They went out to a dance hall, and they were driving round, half drunk, singing their heads off, chasing after the girls and flexing their muscles. So they were doing no more and no less than the stuff we do now, when there's the skinny, the skinny fit trousers and the skinny fit shirts, and we flexing our pecs and flexing our arms and going down the nightclub, and especially after we pumped our arms, and that's with or without drugs doing exactly the same thing and arguably Steve probably drinking more and smoking more and Christ you've got Arnold in quote unquote the golden age in a more innocent time smoking a joint on camera in one of the outtakes from pipe and Iron at some party the one that you see at the end of the movie so they were doing the same stuff as us and they would do the same things that we do now whether that's peptides or growth hormone or IGF or, 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 or any even more the more fucked up stuff and again Great example of this would be at that time, and this is a maybe a good argument for being the golden era, they didn't have the accessibility to trend that we have now. And as we've discussed in other podcasts, when Trend made its way into the scene, it kind of changed the game. So would Arnold and his other athletes at that time have taken Trend? They will argue now, hand on heart, that they wouldn't. But I would say that they're lying to themselves, purely and simply because it becomes The man Arnold is today, from politician and actor and all the other things, and he's an older gentleman, he's older than me, I think he's 70-odd years of age, his perspective as a person now would be different. But when he was kicking ass, when he was in his mid-20s and early 30s, he was a driven, kick-ass athlete, wanting to dominate the other athletes, wanting to dominate the sport. Take the sport by the horns. He, he, he talks about taking over the Federation, I think, at one point. um, He put on the Mr. Olympia later the Arnold competition. He promoted events. He talked about bodybuilding when he was an actor. So he really, really, really liked the sport and wanted it to be really, really big. But it makes him super driven, super whatever. And the idea that if he'd had accessibility to training, he wouldn't have used it. I, I, I say that's a lie. The 70-year-old Arnold won't use it. The 25, 30-year-old Arnold would have fucking jab that. Same as every other motherfucker that does now. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think on that?
0: Yeah, so let me ask you this. Um, Let me ask you this question. It's going to be a tough one? So take all the time you need to think about it. But in the 70s, it was magazines. You wanted exposure as magazines. Today, it's Instagram, it's social media, it's Facebook, it's all these social media sites. That's how bodybuilders promote themselves. That's how they market themselves. What do you think's changed overall between the 70s, the golden era and today? And would you say that social media has been a net negative to bodybuilding
1: or a net positive overall? It's difficult to argue in one way because it's much easier to monetize what you do now if you're a decent athlete with good genetics and you train well and you have an idea. One of the things I talk about is uh, sometimes I say this to guys on the forum, you need to have half an eye on the sport as a whole. You need, to, you need to sort of be aware of your place in the sport, the sport as a whole, and your influence that you might have. But the magazines, and there's, there's really good articles on this now, funny enough, Joe Weeder loved the sport. And Joe Weeder arguably would be the daddy when it came to being a publisher, but above and beyond anybody that's gone before him, and arguably has gone, certainly in the last few years, come afterwards. Because he loved the sport with a passion. He started with nothing and he built up the magazines to the point where when, they, when he sold the publishing empire some years ago, he sold it for $350 million. So he certainly made it valuable to the person that pulled it from him. Unfortunately, that was the time when magazines were starting to die. So he sold it at the right time. He even talked about buying them back afterwards. That's how much he loved it. But what he was also doing is he promoted an idea. So he's what I talked about having that sort of place in a perspective. Half an idea of your place in the sport and the sport as a whole is that sometimes, as individuals, we're kind of selfish. But what you really want to do is you big up not just yourself because you're trying to monetize and make a living and you know buy the car and buy the house and look after everybody, but you're also trying to big up the sport as a whole because that benefits you. And Joe certainly did that thing where he sold the, the readers of the magazines a the dream, the, the Californian lifestyle, that golden age. So I would say then, if you look at the magazines at that time, it was always guys on the beach or on a mountain that have girls draped over them and they'd be driving around. I think the great one for Tom Platz driving around in a Corvette and so on and so forth. So, yeah, the promotion and the idea that the sport was amazing, sometimes it was a bit of a struggle that you wouldn't see in the magazines, but as often as not, these guys had it together. But certainly the age of Instagram allows you to do that for yourself, to monetize it for yourself. But you still need that sense of perspective. You still need to know where your place is in the sport. And if you – I do it now, Steve. My influence on people now is going to be the thing that when I die, people can go back and say, our mobster loved it. He knew the history of it. He promoted it. And he always loved it right to the day that he dies. And that should be kind of half, you know, the back of our minds. When you do this podcast, we're trying to benefit our listeners in the same particular way. We're putting the stuff out there. There's, There's money to be made in the sport. For the forum, et cetera, et cetera, with advertising and sponsors and all that kind of stuff. But equally, those people, the bosses, the sponsors, and ourselves, we love what we do the same as the old guys used to. So that's something that we should we should push more and have more of half an eye on. Please note we are not doctors and opinions. Ours is our view and based on our experience and views on the topic. A podcast of informational purposes and entertainment only, the freedom of speech and the first amendment applies.